The following message and support for AHLA is provided by Berkeley Research Group, a global consulting firm that helps organizations advance in the areas of disputes and investigations, corporate finance, and strategy and operations. BRG helps clients stay ahead of what's next. For more information, visit thinkbrg.com. Good morning, good afternoon. Welcome to another edition of the American Health Law Association Fraud and Abuse Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wetzel. Today, we're talking with Todd Nova of the Milwaukee Office of Hall Render. Todd is a shareholder in the firm and focuses on health law issues for providers across the country. He works with integrated healthcare systems, pharmacies, hospitals, GPOs, and more. His focus is on regulatory reimbursement, corporate and compliance issues, advising providers on third-party reimbursement opportunities, licensure, certification standards, and regulatory compliance mandates. Todd is an expert on matters related to the sourcing, delivery, dispensing, and reimbursement of pharmaceuticals, including the 340B drug discount program, which is the topic of our discussion today. Okay, well, listen, hey, Todd, let's let, let's jump right in. Um, you know, there's been a lot reported recently about the 340B program, and most notably, from my perspective, discrepancies in how federal courts are interpreting some of the 340B program requirements around contract pharmacies. Do you want to walk us through the issues there? Sure, absolutely. Happy to do it. So, um relatively recently, um, relative being the operative word, in, in the past year, year and a half or so, um, led by your manufacturers, uh, Novartis, Lilly, AstraZeneca, a uh, handful, handful of others, um, manufacturers have begun limiting the contract pharmacies to which they will deliver their drugs at 340B pricing. And just a level set for folks, a, a contract pharmacy is, is, a, is a contracted arrangement where a, a separately incorporated, very often for-profit retail pharmacy will take delivery of 340B price drugs and dispense those drugs to patients of 340B covered entities. And covered entities in the, in, in the 340B world are, are what HRSA OPA, the agency that administers the program, refers to. Uh, that, that's how the that's how OPA refers to 340B participating uh, providers, right? So providers as distinct from suppliers. Providers are obviously hospitals, um, FQHCs, uh, Ryan, and, and other federal grantees that are eligible to participate as 340B covered entities purchasing discounted drugs, and then suppliers being the, the retail pharmacies. So what was happening is the the covered entities were contracting with with retail pharmacies. So um, whether specialty or traditional retail, Walgreens, CVS, uh, Acredo, uh, and and then and then they would allow their drugs to be purchased on accounts and then shipped to the, the term is shipped to to these contract pharmacies. So um, historically, those drugs would be shipped. Um, there are thousands and thousands, uh, upwards uh, upwards of, of 18,000 uh, contract pharmacy arrangements nationally. So it is it is clearly a big issue. And, and a handful of manufacturers to date, it's up to, uh, I think, 11 manufacturers, maybe it's 12, um, who, who have said that they will limit the delivery of those drugs to typically only one third-party retail pharmacy and then wholly owned pharmacies in, in a lot of cases. So, so these manufacturers have, have unilaterally said they will no longer offer that pricing to multiple contract pharmacies. So that, that's the crux of the issue. 
um, and, and they there is litigation in various district courts related to to that that refusal with with plaintiffs both uh, both on the manufacturer and the covered entity side. On the covered entity side, it tends to be more uh, more affinity organizations, uh, AHA, uh, Ryan White Coalition, and MAC. And can you talk a little bit, Todd, about sort of the reasons that manufacturers have taken this position that, you know, we're only going to distribute to uh, one pharmacy or to the pharmacy of record? What's the um, what's the thinking there from the manufacturer's perspective? Right. From the manufacturer's perspective, their, their position, if we were dis- to distill it down, and obviously it, it, it gets fairly nuanced, but to distill it down, th- their position is that the, the, the statute that governs the 340B program requires that they must offer uh, uh, prescription drugs at 340B prices to covered entities. And ultimately, their position is that these retail pharmacies don't constitute the covered entity. And so they are, in fact, offering the 340B price to the covered entity, uh, but that does not require them, in their view, to make that pricing available to to third-party contract pharmacies. And just to just to maybe play a little devil's advocate here, um, you know, part of the issue, as I understand it, uh, is the concept of drug diversion, or rather, the idea that um, patients who may not necessarily um, merit the 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 lower 340B pricing are able to access it through these contract pharmacies. What sorts of controls should be put in place to avoid that type of issue? Um, that might be, you know, helpful from both sides of the of, of the concern, both from the, you know, the the provider side, the covered entity side, and then also uh, the manufacturer side. That, it's a it's a great question, Matt, and I'm I'm going to answer that. But then I'd also like to get your thoughts on that, given your um, sure. how you come at this, right? More from the manufacturer side, and more from the life sciences side, and and and, and me, uh, you know, coming at it more from the the provider covered entity care delivery side. Um, so, so, so I think the, the manufacturers are there. I know the manufacturer position um, is is trying to address a few different issues, and, and, and you just touched on a lot there, right? So, so it's two primary issues. You, you mentioned diversion, but then also there's a duplicate discount issue. So the first is whether or not drugs are being provided uh, or made available to to covered entity patients. Um, these covered entities are audited. The contract pharmacies are, are audited uh, by HRSA OPA, and it's a, it's a, it's, it's a subcontracted audit model uh, through a group called Bazell Group. Um, but there's, there is diversion that, that has been noted to occur, but the percentage of diversion findings is actually very low and, and decreasing. They, there, were, uh, there was a, a significant uptick in, three, in HRSA OPA audit activity beginning about four or five years ago. And, and a lot of the, uh, the alleged diversion and the actual diversion, I mean, it does occur, um, has, has, those findings have, have, have decreased significantly. Um, but what that doesn't necessarily address are some issues that, that the manufacturers have relative to a term called duplicate discount. And it's a bit of a misnomer, but a duplicate discount is this. So the, the manufacturers are not required under Medicare, uh, Medicaid fee for service to offer a 340B, to, to give a 340B discount, and then also pay a rebate to the state Medicaid agencies. Um, when drugs are, are dispensed through contract pharmacies, however, um, if they are dispensed 
to a Medicaid fee-for-service beneficiary, um, then very often because of some of the nomenclature and backend tracking, there can be a, a, a rebate that's paid and then a discount that's also paid, which is not which is which is restricted by by the statute. Um, so so that is is occurring at a relatively infrequent basis. I think the industry is pretty clear that Medicaid fee for service needs to be excluded um, from those models. So operationally, I just don't think that that's that big of a deal. I don't think that diversion is that big of a deal. But fundamentally, a lot of this boils down to um, whether or not contract pharmacies are an appropriate venue uh, for extension of care to covered entity patients. Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a it's a, an interesting point, and certainly, um, you know, these are these are the areas that that we do talk about quite a bit. I, you know, from my perspective, um, you know, working primarily on the manufacturer side, I think a big part of it, you know, and perhaps it's more of a policy issue. Um, but a big part of it is the complexity associated with the price reporting requirements that manufacturers are already under. And, you know, here, as you talk about the duplicate discount, the idea of both the, you know, the Medicaid rebate and the 340B, you know, um, discounted pricing, uh, you know, the idea here being that it's tough, it's tough to keep track. And um, to the extent that, um, you know, these additional uh, entities that might not necessarily be um, specifically mandated under the statute um, are also receiving the pricing. It complicates um, that process. Not that that's um, not that that's um, you know the entire world uh, for uh, for uh, for a manufacturer, but um, it does certainly add um, some administrative um, burden to the manufacturer side that that really kind of takes away um, from you know the the real goal, which is to you know get drugs in the hands of patients who who have a real need for them um, at the pricing um, to which they're, you know, legally uh, uh, entitled. Um, but, you know, it's been an interesting um, back and forth. You know, one of the other pieces of concern, at least, you know, some, some clients have expressed is this idea that um, HHS's response has been somewhat on the arbitrary side um, in this, uh, in this area, um, maybe not arbitrary, but uh, you know, not not something that's led to sort of predicting, you know, uh, predictive behavior uh, uh, moving forward. Um, some of this has been in response to litigation. Some of it has been sort of, you know, made final um, without, uh, you know, a significant amount of um, uh, notice and, and public comment. So I think there's probably some room here for clarity from HHS uh, on the issue that might help settle it as well. Um, I wonder on that front, um, Todd, you know, one of the um, areas that's of interest um, to me with respect to 340B is this sort of, you know, evolving ecosystem of regulation. What can you tell us about the latest developments, either legislative or regulatory on the 340B uh, with respect to the 340B program? Um, Great question, and and so maybe we can we can take a step back to to because you and I are are both pretty involved in the space, and we both clearly clearly enjoy it. So let me try to try to pull myself out of the weeds a little bit. So what we are seeing with respect to um, the regulatory oversight of the program has a lot to do with what the statute does and doesn't permit. Uh, what it affirmatively allows to be regulated versus what's interpretive guidance. So, so for those of us um, admin law nerds, 
on uh, that are listening to this, right? There, there's the concept of what is interpretive, permissible interpretive guidance, and what's what's an authorized regulation. The 340B statute is relatively sparse on what is permitted to be administered via regulation. One of those things is an administrative dispute resolution policy or procedure. Now, now, interestingly enough, uh, about a week ago, um, the government issued guides indicating that they would be withdrawing the ADR rule, which is actually really significant and is going to delay resolution on a lot of what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. um, and, the, and they're delaying it because it, it, my, my belief, and I don't have any inside baseball on this, but, but it seems to me that they are doing it due to, to address some potential procedural deficiencies that manufacturers um, have attempted to litigate, that being um, too, too long of a time frame between the proposed rule and the final rule. It, it, would, it had to have been uh, finalized within three years. Now, um, it's an open question about whether or not that was met, but if, if uh, HHS does in fact withdraw that, and, and I would anticipate that they will, um, it'll be very interesting to see from a process perspective how that ADR rule changes. Um, they, they, they did indicate that they would reissue it. So there will be an ADR process, but there has to be an ADR process because the statute requires it. Okay, so that will form the basis, by the way. Of, everyone's wondering, what does this mean for 340B? Uh, nobody knows that the answer to that question, but when we're looking at a time frame for resolution, I think the courts, a lot of courts now have said, we're not saying that contract pharmacies are not permissible. We're not saying they are, but but that is that is a, a there's a reasonable argument that they are permissible. And 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 not to put words in, in your mouth, Matt, but I would guess that you would also say there's a reasonable argument that they're not. So pushing that that discussion aside, um, what what a lot of courts have said is the first stage in this uh, process from an administrative law perspective is that that ADR panel has to issue. A, a, or the ADR process has to, out of that has to come a final determination. And that final determination is then what can be appropriately litigated. So, so from a, to answer your question, so what are we seeing from a regulation perspective? That's really the, the primary um, result of that. Now, everything else pretty much in, in, the, um, in, in the statute would require um, interpretive interpretive guidance. You're, you're probably familiar back uh, a, a number of years ago now, there was, they, HRSA uh, issued a couple of rules, one to address orphan drug, use of orphan drugs in right. the 340B program, right? The other, the omnibus guidance, um, that was withdrawn as, because it was alleged that those were over overbroad. Um, so, but we've all seen CMS. I think a lot of this has to do with OPA, right? So you have HHS, which is over HRSA, which is over OPA, Office of Pharmacy Affairs, that administers the 340 program. Mm -hmm. The Office of Pharmacy Affairs is not, they just don't have as much experience as uh, relative to CMS with implementation of some of these procedural considerations under admin law. Um, now that Admiral Pedley is, has stepped back from her role, we would anticipate someone coming in to administer the program that perhaps has less of a pharmacy-focused background and perhaps more of an administrative Focus background to address some of these um, some of these procedural deficiencies um, that have uh, at a minimum delayed resolution on a lot of these questions that we're talking about now. So um, anyway, that's a that's a sorry for the long winded answer. No, that was that was terrific, Todd, and that really you know puts a lot of a lot of these issues into perspective. And you know as I think about 
you know, the you mentioned the administrative uh, law law nerds. I consider myself to be one. Uh, you know, just thinking about the various um, you know smart and and uh, and knowledgeable lawyers who work on both sides of this issue, I imagine that. Uh, you know, sort of a clear process, a clear statement, a clearer set of expectations from OPA, uh, from HRSA, from HHS. I, you know, I think that would go a long way to, you know, perhaps resolving this dispute or at least, you know, creating a, a you know, a framework whereby, um, you know, a solution can be found. Um you know, you mentioned a couple of potential changes at OPA, and you know, one one question that I I do like to ask, especially this time of year, uh, for lawyers who are uh, you know in in similar or uh, you know adjacent practices to mine, I'd love to hear your prognostications for 2022. Uh, what do you think uh, is going to happen in the 340B world uh, with respect to either? You know, any legislative changes, perhaps some of these regulatory, um, you know, enhancements we're talking about. You mentioned perhaps some, you know, um, some changes on the administration side. We'd love to, to, to hear what you think for 2022. Uh, well, for, for, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, like everyone, I, I wish I knew. Um, but I would anticipate that we will have final clarity on an, on an ADR process. I, I don't anticipate any material changes from a legislative perspective. We've seen various proposals on the Hill, uh, well, for the better part of, of four years now, um, rel relative to price transparency, price reporting, uh, reporting of, of how the benefit is used, sort of similar to uh, the community benefit reporting that, that is required under IRS standards. Um, I don't sense that there's a, a lot or I, there, there's certainly uh, inertia behind it, but I don't know that there's critical mass to get material changes um, to get material changes to the program. I anticipate that the, the root of the program will, will stay in place. We know uh, by that we've been talking mainly about HRSA OPA. One of the things we, we haven't touched on that is is the CMS price uh, uh, or reimbursement reductions relative to 340B pricing. Um, I would, if you had asked me the same question a year ago uh, with a new administration, whether or not CMS would reverse its policy to uh, uh, allow for reduced reimbursement for 340B acquired drugs, I, I would have anticipated that would be the case. But um, the, the OPPS rule that, that relatively recently came out indicates that the administration actually is going to be keeping that in place. Um, so I think for, for folks that are involved in listening to this that are involved in 340B, uh, 340B reimbursement, um, that, that the government will continue to, to obtain the 340B savings and reallocate those to fund the market basket adjustment, uh, right? Which, which goes to both nonprofit and for-profit uh, entities. And, and so, so I think that will stay in place. I think we will see a reissued ADR petition. I think, the, I think N or multiple um, ADR processes will, will proceed. Um, and I would anticipate by the end of the year, we'll at least have a final uh, final rule, if not a final decision in the ADR process. Then into 2023, as hard as that is to believe, I would anticipate that whatever the results are um, of that, whether favorable to manufacturers or covered entities, that that will be subsequently litigated. Um, and so we're probably looking at best a two-year window to have any substantive resolution on contract pharmacies. I wouldn't anticipate any um, significant legislative changes to the program. There may be some reporting changes. Um, I, I think that there, there is enough 
while there are frustrations with the program, I, I, I think it's fair to say that no one is, is counseling in uh, at the Hill uh, in either party. No one is counseling in favor of, of abolishing the program. They're certainly talking about uh, addressing uh, reporting and, and contract pharmacy clarity, but I, I, I just don't see enough inertia because of the reliance on, on the program and some of the other priorities um, that the government has. And the government also is both Medicaid and Medicare are now coming to rely on those discounts uh, to fund some of their operations. So it makes makes for, for a very complex issue. Uh, I think that's probably where we end up at the end of the year, which is some additional clarity, but certainly not final resolution. Sounds like we may have an exciting year and two years in front of us uh, with respect to the 340B program and uh, that uh, we can expect changes on several fronts uh, with respect to the program. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, we might need to wait a little bit until we get clarity on some of the you know, current controversial issues facing the program. Todd Nova, thanks so much for joining us today. This has been incredibly insightful, and I'm sure our listeners appreciate all of the uh, uh, insight and information that you have on this important program uh, for healthcare. Thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate the opportunity and your time. Thanks also to our listeners for joining us today. This has been another edition of the American Health Law Association's Fraud and Abuse podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wetzel, and we'll return next month with another episode. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.